Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Our great failure... President Michael D. Higgins lambasts Ireland's housing policy, saying it could no longer be described as a crisis, but a disaster. Building homes is what is important. It is not to be a star performer for the speculative sector internationally or anything else. The micro-redress scheme is expanded to include Clare and Limerick, but do campaigners feel the government has finally gotten this right? Controversy over the planned closure of Navin A&E, junior doctors on the brink of industrial action, overcrowding in our A&E and waiting lists worse than ever is our health service on the brink. And later, consumer finance advisor Owen McGee talks navigating inflation and saving money. Do get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. in studio with me to discuss all of this and more is Fianna Fáil TD Neve Smith, Sinn Féin TD Parag McLaughlin and Executive Editor for the Daily Mail Group John Lee. But first, speaking on his way into Cabinet this morning, Taoiseach Michael Martin described the legislation on the Northern Ireland Protocol published by the British government as a fundamental breach of trust that made for very difficult times ahead. With the ball now firmly in the EU's court, I spoke a little earlier to Europe correspondent for Euronews, Shona Murray, and I began by asking her if we have a clear picture now of how the EU will respond. Well, we'll hear tomorrow from Maro Sefcovic, he'll announce, but what so far what we know is that the EU will revive infringement proceedings against the UK that they had back in 2021 when the UK first reached the protocol. Um, they decided to suspend them initially to allow the negotiations take place and breathe. Um, so they're going to revive them and then there will be other infringement proceedings against the UK, which will be essentially legal letters with complaints in them. And then further down the line, it depends on how this bill progresses through the House of Commons. Ultimately, of course, you could have a suspension of the trade agreement between the EU and the UK. Nobody wants that. But the feeling here in, in Brussels is because... This issue is very much about the Tory party, uh, you know, British domestic uh, politics, that they don't really feel that it will pass through and become law. Well, at least they hope that. And they're also, we understand, going to sort of flesh out solutions that might deal with some of the obstacles that the uh, protocol has created for businesses in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, we know that the EU has been discussing this since October, um, derogations to allow the protocol work 
um, when it comes to customs, regulatory checks and so on. And what's interesting, Kira, is that one of the um, proposals the EU has is very similar to the demands from the UK, which is this green lane where you have uh, goods only meant for Northern Ireland to have very few regulatory uh, and customs checks. And they call it an express lane in Brussels. The UK calls it a green lane. And I think part of this is to illustrate to the UK that you don't have to change the legal nature of the protocol. You can actually work within the protocol uh, to make it much more practical. So Mara Sefcovic will be announcing that anyway, separately. And also the point from the EU is that the EU is doing this unilaterally, like it did with the medicines when it solved that issue. Um, because Brussels has been complaining that the British side have refused to engage in any of these negotiations on a practical level since at least February and probably before that. Uh, that obviously doesn't address the issues around VAT or the ECJ. They, I presume, would have to be discussed uh, through talks, through negotiations. Any sense of the UK uh, properly re-engaging with the EU on this? That's the key question because um, obviously you do need to have both sides and the really the trust level is at an all-time low. As we've heard from all sides, you know, it's historic low, acrimonious. And, you know, Marosevkovic has said to the commission, essentially, that he doesn't have any trust in the uh, British side to negotiate. Actually, at times, there were some technical discussions around customs, SBS, and so on. But the feeling from Brussels is that um, the technical team from the UK uh, were really hampered from a political perspective in moving and trying to solve these issues. Because again, as we know, um, the EU, the protocol is a lightning rod for within UK politics. And it's very helpful for the likes of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss to use in order to shore up support. So while there are political solutions, everybody believes these issues are not insurmountable. Uh, they'll always be used for domestic politics. And I think that's the issue about getting the UK back to the table. But we have heard from Liz Truss saying, you know, she wants a negotiated solution and a negotiated outcome. But really, nobody believes that here at this point. Mm, we'll just have to wait and see. All right, Shona Murray, we'll leave it there. Uh, Neve Smith, I'm just wondering how your constituents feel about this. You're in a border county. Are they anxious? Of course they are. And I'm going to give you the example of Lakeland Dairies. Lakeland Dairies is one of the biggest employers with over 700 people employed. Global exporter to about 80 different countries. And it's one of, a really good example of somewhere with four processing plants in the north uh, and four in the south. And prior, when Brexit happened in the first place, they would have been extremely anxious about what that was going to me mean about, you know, collecting milk in the south of the island and or collecting milk in the north of the island and bringing it into a processing plant in two different jurisdictions, which is literally what you're dealing with and the protocol did deal with all of that uh, and and you know it's a prime example of why or, or how the protocol is working and we know from all the industries whether it be agriculture um, industry itself um, you know there, nobody in the north of this island is complaining about the protocol and that I think is the there's thing some, that, isn't there? There are some uh, businesses that do say there are difficulties there but as Shona says the EU believe that the difficulties, the obstacles are surmountable. They are. Perhaps the UK doesn't. Morris Shekhovic, as you know, came to Ireland and he came to the north and spoke with a lot of the business people that had various, you know, complaints about how it operated in an everyday sense. Mm -hmm. And those issues were addressed. They were given, solutions were presented to Liz Truss last February and she has never really engaged uh, since that. I suppose a big fear, um, Podrick, is that if the UK did push through with this, if they refused to check 
the majority of goods coming from the UK into Northern Ireland, somebody has to check them. And is that somebody going to be Ireland? And does that mean a border? Well, I, I think, you know, we, we have to go back to fully grasp how outrageous Boris Johnson and the Tories' behaviour has been. And, and I do want to, I do recognise that, and we, I think we've discussed that at length, but I suppose I just want to focus on what would happen if they push through. What is the actual practical reality for well, that's the difficulty. The I mean, that's, that's the difficulty. I mean, the north of Ireland's economy, I mean, if you compare it to other parts of, of uh, the British uh, economy, only London's outperforming the north of Ireland. So, I mean, there's a reason why 60% of the MLAs who were recently elected in the north support the protocol. Everybody uh, agrees there's issues to, you know, to stretch out through negotiations, but it doesn't warrant, you know, breaking international law, tearing up solemn agreements that you've made. And remember... The protocol is the offspring of the Brexit that the DUP and Boris Johnson's Tories wanted. The hard line, the hardest Brexit of all. This is the outworkings and offspring of that. So uh, it's irresponsible beyond belief. Uh, John, look, these aren't Ireland's negotiations. We know that, but um, we do have the ear of the EU on this. What we're hearing, though, time and time again, is the relationship between Ireland and the UK, between Boris Johnson and Michael Martin, or between Simon Coveney and Liz Truss, that it's toxic at this point? Yeah, it's, it, it seems to be, but um, I don't think there's any real way of improving um, the relationship with this, with this government, because I don't think, the, with the Tory government, because I don't think they're interested in it. You know, I remember being on this programme and others um, six years ago, we're nearly at the, what day is it, 26th? The sixth anniversary of Brexit. And, and we predicted then that it could take 10 years for this to wash through the system, perhaps 15. I think Jean-Claude Juncker said something similar. We're six years down the line, and it's clear with Boris Johnson's wing of the Tory party that they're interested in perpetual warfare, that the, the continuance of an argument over Brexit is what sustains them, not necessarily a solution. So they're not interested in the solution. They're not even interested in getting this legislation through, through the House of Commons, sorry, through... Um, the House of Lords because it's expected to fall there and then we go back and start again. Johnson's domestic problems are, are and pressing. And with the EU is perhaps a distraction for how Brexit is actually affecting the UK economy. Absolutely, because it's, it, it's, it's not doing well now. If one listens to, and of course it probably has a certain leaning, people like Alistair Campbell and those kind of people, they're very condemnatory of um, Brexit and its performance and the, the mm. refusal to admit how badly it's doing. But I don't think... That's what they want. <coughs> it, it, it never made much sense for them economically. <coughs> so continuing warfare is what they desire. All right, I just want to move on um, to other news tonight because in a speech to mark the opening of a new housing service for young adults in Kildare, President Michael D. Higgins slammed the government's housing policy, stating that the issue was Ireland's great, great failure. I have taken as well to speaking ever more frankly in relation to housing because I think it is our great, great, great failure. It isn't a crisis anymore. It is a disaster. Building homes is what is important. It is not to be a star performer for the speculative sector internationally or anything else. The outlook is getting darker in relation to the middle parts of our population. I feel that I, as president, have to speak very directly about this. Housing and the basic needs of society should never have been left to the marketplace. Even language itself suffers when you're involved in this bogus kind of living. About properties are describing as having come to market. 
as if they're having a conversation with each other to come down the street. It's the last straw when the language doesn't mean anything anymore. There is a powerful word, home. Home. Home is about the outpouring of intimacies and emotions. Sometimes it is only a very simple thing, but it is where personalities developed, where relationships with others are developed. It is a place to come back to, a place to depart from. And my wish as president is, let all the county managers and the directors of services all over the country have a good long look at what is happening in Wicklow and Kildare and ask themselves the question before their next monthly meeting, why aren't we doing something similar? What is stopping us? Michael D. Higgins uh, speaking earlier today. John, it's partially critical of the housing crisis, the housing disaster, and harshly critical of government policy. What did you make of it? It, uh, it was a nakedly political speech, which I, that is not a pejorative um, description of it. It was an incredible speech. I went back through... Um, I, I phoned his uh, press representative and asked for a script of the speech, and he wryly said, I'll send you over the script but um, I'll have to send you the audio as well because he, uh, he didn't quite stick to it. So if you watch him there, he? he's not looking at it. <clears throat> so if the government had ever wanted to, say, screen the speeches of our president, they won't be able to do them. And it was, it was incredible. And it's well worth if anyone can find it online of going through the whole thing because in the lead-up to those striking words where he um, condemns government housing policy as a complete failure, sorry, as a disaster, he says that, you know, we formed a republic to get away from the poor laws, the British poor, poor laws, and what we have now more resembles those. And he then goes on to paint a stark picture of the Irish streetscape where one will walk down a street, he says, and see nothing but derelict buildings. Um, you go into half-empty villages around rural Ireland. They're, they're empty because the banks have decided to leave, taking everything with them, having made their profits. It's a, it's a, it's a stark um, excoration of government policy across the board. And if one looks back, he left um, the Oireachtas as a TD in 2011. So he is pretty much taking apart Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil's performance in the area of housing since 2011. And let's not forget Fianna Fáil supported uh, Fine Gael's housing policy from 2016. So it's difficult for them to say this was an historic speech. Mm. And it is, I think it's a politically difficult situation now because if the Taoiseach or anybody else tries to defend their housing policy, it would be thrown back at them that the most popular politician in the country, who got an extraordinary mandate back in, in uh, 2018, has called their housing policy a disaster. Do you think he has captured the, the desperation, the anger and the, the emotion that people feel about the housing situation? Of course he has. He, I mean, he's a uniquely gifted politician in understanding what people want to hear. And I, again, I go back to the mandate he gained in, in 2018. He is, uh, if you look at his, the history of his career, he, he somehow, and I don't mean this again too, too closely, he somehow resembles politicians like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson in that, that he was something of a TV star before he really made it as a, a national politician. I'd say that he was very popular on television, that people knew Michael D as a, as a commentator and a personality maybe before they knew him as a, as a frontline politician, certainly before he became president. He's a national treasurer in many ways. They have a certain affection towards him and towards this statement too, you'd imagine. But he has not well wandered received. into this politically um, dangerous um, area for himself. 
Um, he could technically be upbraided by the government for, for, for going off on the tangent that he has today and going off into the area he has today. But he is clearly confident in his own popularity and his own position in Irish national life that he can turn around as a president who traditionally the position did not comment on current political affairs. He has moved on, he's developed right. the presidency and has made it into a different, a, a different dynamic, that, um, that position. Neve, will you berate him? I mean, the t listen to, and I didn't get to hear the full speech today, Kira. but I mean, listen to the snippets that I have heard and what I heard in the news this evening. I mean, you couldn't disagree with anything that the president is saying. And you do feel his passion. I mean, we all feel like that. Even as public representatives, I think, across the House, we all want to see people having a roof over their home. We all see that as a basic human right to have that security and, and to know that you will have a roof over Look, your that's home. That's not just what he was saying. I know, I appreciate that. He was I saying the outlook is darker and he said the star our performer here is the speculative sector internationally, and that is a direct criticism of your party's policies. Okay, I, I hear what you're saying, Kira. I also have to say that Dara O'Brien, as Minister for Housing, is in the job not two years, okay? And I know that the, the, what John is saying, the President's been critical of not just Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, but the truth is this minister has been in situ for 18 months. He has a housing for all plan in place. He has money behind it. I think it's four billion in terms of the investment is there. He has a suite but of I measures in place to deliver. But I suppose Fianna Fáil have supported Fine Gael Look, for at years time, now, so they have to take responsibility at, for the housing time, policies then that too that they supported. At that time we wanted to see a government in place. I don't deny that for one second. But the truth is, and we have to be honest with ourselves, he is not even two years in the job. He's a housing for all policy. He has a so money behind it. So you don't disagree it. then with what the President's saying? Of course. I mean, if I walk down the main street of Bailborough, I see banks have left the street. I see empty buildings. It's heartbreaking. Uh, and do you agree that policies to date have left the housing situation to speculation from international investors? There is no denying there is no denying that at all, Kira. But Fianna Fáil in government, and, the, and in particular the Minister for Housing, is trying to reverse that, along with his cabinet colleagues who are looking at uh, town, or town centre policies first. They're trying to find different ways of reinventing and reconfiguring main streets. And we have to look at the integrity of our main streets because it goes beyond that. Right. It does go beyond that in the sense that it looks at local authorities, what planning policy has been to that, and it incorporates all of that. It's okay. not just one problem. Uh, Podrick, do you accept Starbright? Is at two years in the job, and there is a housing for all policy, and they have, you know, the intentions and the money you're saying and the plan to fix this. I think that uh, Michael D. Higgins showed himself to be more in touch with the people than, unfortunately, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, led governments. It is a disaster that we're facing. Uh, we're talking now, and, and you know, in our home county of Donegal, people had to emigrate because they didn't have work. Now they emigrate because they can't afford to live in this country. They can't afford to put a roof over their head. And that is because we failed to build public housing for over a decade. We pushed everybody into the private rental sector. There's people made a lot of profit from this uh, and we stopped building public housing. Total disaster. We now have a situation where even in places like Donegal, uh, my home county, you cannot get a home to rent, never mind be able to afford a roof over your head. This is because, directly because of government policy. Michael D. Higgins went off script today. He spoke from the heart and he spoke for the Irish people in every word he said today. And it doesn't matter, does it, I would imagine, to most Irish people, John Lee, that he did perhaps go off script and perhaps go beyond the bounds of what a president is meant to talk about. No, and I think it's it, it's loosely defined what a president can and can't. And I, I can't remember last time he got in trouble, and I say that jokingly, as in last time he spoke controversially, I think it was about the banking sector as well. And we did query 
what exactly um, the government did and they, when it came to his speeches and they told us they do not screen what he says. They have no right to screen what he says and he's entitled to say whatever he wants. And I go back to his mandate. You know, he's looking at it as a politician, which he is in a very astute one. And if we look at 2022 now, we look at the figures between now and 2025, when interestingly, Michael D leaves office and so does the government. I, I think the time to turn that oil tanker away is, is too short. So you've got 10,000 homeless people again, the latest figures, that's the first time in two years. And we, we were leaked, and which has since been ratified, a, an internal me um, memo which says the government won't reach its housing targets of 33,000 a year, which is, which is limited enough anyway, um, until 2025. That's too late for the government to save themselves when it comes to one of the most politically explosive issues in the canon right now. Uh, if you look at the exit polls from, we're discussing Brexit from uh, 2020, Brexit was down around three or four percent on its influence of people's voting habits. Housing was number two after health. All right, well, speaking of uh, housing, the Cabinet has today signed off on the estimated 2.7 billion redress scheme for homes affected by MICA and the extension of this scheme to counties Clare and Limerick. Well, joining me on this via Skype is PRO of the MICA Action Group, Michael Doherty, for reaction to that. Michael, you have been waiting for this for a long time. You got detail of the scheme today. Has the government gone far enough? Have they finally got it right for you and your members? Um, I have to say the, the short answer is no, they haven't got it right. And uh, the, I, I suppose the most frustrating part of this is it's been a, a 10 year campaign. Um, they had the first bite at getting this right in uh, uh, 2020, January 2020, with the so-called 90-10 scheme, and um, that was an outright failure in that we have over 800 applications at Donegal County Council, mm -hmm. and not one home is finished that was demolished and rebuilt yet, not one. Uh, we have some that have outer walls changed around and things like and so on, but not one complete demolition and rebuild in all that time. There's 350 of them applications stalled for over six months on a standoff between the department and Donegal County Council over how they should be assessed uh, regards the deleterious materials that are there versus the IS465 standard that's meant to gauge them. So that's a standoff there. So we then had um, you know, massive frustration that took to the streets in uh, June of last year, 15th of June, a year tomorrow actually. And uh, we had uh, over 20,000 people march on and the hope, I suppose, Michael, was that this scheme uh, would reflect the, the, the needs that your group has put forward. Uh, sorry, Michael, I think there's probably a bit of an interference on the line there. And specifically in relation to this scheme, what is wrong? Yeah. OK. So we came along then to the last forward to it, and it was revealed today, and it just fell short of the moment here. And... Um, they knew exactly what was needing to be done in order to make it work, but uh, the witness was not there. The shortfalls remain, and we're now in a position where we have to see that through in some other form, probably in the form of amendments. And if that doesn't work this time around, then really that's been two bites by this government, um, and we don't really see this worthwhile pursuing with this government another bite of the cherry after this. All right, let me just go to my uh, panel here, Neve. 
Is there space for amendments on this particular scheme? I mean, we've heard that there's 2.7 billion now in the pot. And the amendments, let's face it, that many of those uh, looking for redress is is going to be more money. They want the cap, for example, raised, I think, from 420,000 to 460,000. Can that be done? When we, the government talks about amendments today, is that the type of amendment you're talking about? Well, I suppose I know there's been a lot of discussion today um, about... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I suppose the pre-legislative scrutiny around this, and I suppose to leave time and space for those worst affected by this uh, for further discussion, for amendments, as, as you said, and all that. And it's important just to say that um, <clears throat> the reason that government would try and, I suppose, have a waiver around PLS is that they would uh, try to get money to the homeowners as quickly as possible. As but Michael said yeah. there, it has been going on for 10 years. But just to be clear, um, I know there was interference there uh, with Michael's line, but I did hear him speaking on radio earlier today, and he said, look, we've been waiting for 10 years. Yeah. If this takes another three or four months to get this right, we're happy with that. We would prefer pre-legislative scrutiny to get this right. So yeah. why is the government not allowing well, my that? My experience, and these gentlemen are, are, are around the door longer than me, but my experience of pre-legislative scrutiny, it can go on for months and months and months. However, I do believe, and it's my understanding, that the um, committee with responsibility, the Oireachtas Committee on Housing, are meeting tomorrow morning to try and... There is a real willingness and an earnest willingness there to try and give the homeowners what they want and at the same time get money into their pockets as quickly mm. as possible. And it's important important to say this is the biggest compensation scheme in the history of the state around this particular problem around Micah and people in, with their homes in Donegal. And, and it has been extended to Limerick and Clare, as you know. Uh, and I know that can be cold comfort to people who are 10 years watching their houses crumbling around them and nobody will have the experience that Podrick has. I know that. I, I, I mean, nothing, I suppose, can alleviate that. But well, I think I would... the, the, the problem is yeah. that the government want on this occasion to make sure that people get access to those financial supports to get their houses right. sorted out as quickly as possible. Uh, Podrick, uh, Neve saying, look, the government is acting in earnest here. They do want to get the right scheme in place. Uh, but Leo Radker did also say today, look, it is impossible to please everybody. Everybody will never be happy with what we offer. Well, 
you know, if we go back to uh, 2020, we had the infamous 90-10 scheme, which ended up being a disaster, and Michael uh, dealt with that. So trust is very thin on the ground in Donegal, Mayo, and these other counties now, Clare and Limerick, and so many other counties, Sligo, uh, I, uh, you know, we can go on. Uh, so the trust isn't there. Uh, there has been false dawns. In 2021, uh, we had the slide and scale debacle, another disaster, uh, when people's hopes were up. So... You're spending 2.7 billion, 2.7 billion of taxpayers' money. Why would you not have detailed scrutiny? Uh, and the other thing to say is this: is well, the government it, is saying, look, the most important thing now is people have been waiting for 10 years. Let's just get money in their in their pockets. You but, disagree with that? I, I, but I, as, well, in fairness. See, that was, a, that was a speech in 2022. We need to get on with this. We can't legislate for it. We need to get on. We haven't got time. And they made a total mess of it. And they cost the taxpayer a fortune of money by making a mess of it two years ago. So what we're talking about now is get this right this time. Do not drag and these families... And what does families. that mean, um, Padraig? Like, what is wrong with this particular uh, scheme? Well, for a lot of families, it actually won't be 100% redress. And there's proposals from the homeowners to try and get it to 100% redress. They, they need to be listened to. But this is a huge issue. The issue of the IS465, which is the standard under which engineers uh, will do the testing and uh, do the solution and then uh, it could be a complete rebuild of the house in many instances. As we speak, that standard is being reviewed, right? And it may be the case, and I, I believe it will be the case, that you need to, uh, if you're going to demolish the house, remove the foundations and the blocks in the scheme that this government are talking about, you only get compensated for the blocks. So you're supposed to leave the foundation there. So you've got a, a scheme that needs, isn't being thought through. Mm. It needs to be properly scrutinised. And the most important point I can say, and I know you'll agree, everybody here would have to agree with this, the traumatised families have been through hell. They cannot keep going back mm. to this scenario where it's not working for them. Uh, and speaking of those traumatised families, uh, John Lee, I'm conscious that you know, we talked about the protocol a little earlier in the programme. Uh, we talk about housing, we talk about the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis. But if you're in one of those counties or one of those areas where either you've been affected by MICA or your neighbour or your friend or your cousin has been affected by MICA, this is the issue. This is the number one issue for you. And this is what you are going to call, uh, hold government to account over. It's funny, Michael mentioned the um, protest this time last year. I, I remember being at it. It was one, I hope they don't mind me saying, it was one of the more good-humoured protests I've been at. It was a sunny day. But I remember, I, I think I met Porrick out in the street, mm. just near the Marion Hotel. and went back in, I met Joe McHugh, the Donegal um, Fine Gael TD, and he was standing looking out the gate, and he looked too fearful to go out there. And I, I could see it in his eyes that day, he sensed a problem. And he's gone, he's decided not to run the next general election. This is clearly going to be a seriously um, politically damaging issue for the government down the west coast of Ireland now, it appears. Um, already they're struggling in many areas in, in, in Ireland when it comes to the next general election. So Fine Gael Obviously, and Fine Foyle seats under pressure in these areas if the scheme isn't right? It doesn't look like the scheme, um, no matter what it does at this stage, is going to save government seats. Um, principally on the mica issue so you know it's um it, it's it's extremely politically um damaging problem now that i can't see them being solved in time all right again well, uh, that's all we have time for on that topic and um, my thanks to michael doherty and, and apologies uh, his line wasn't great there uh, hopefully we'll get back to you in the near future michael the rest of our panel will be staying with us after the break the plan to close navin a and e looks set to become a bit of a political headache
You're very welcome back. Now, while campaign groups say they are disheartened by the planned closure of the emergency department of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan, the HSE's Dr. Colin Henry insisted earlier today that the decision is not a downgrade, but is a move that will best serve the local community. Whatever it may be, the issue seems to be coming a thorn in the side of Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. This, of course, against the backdrop of a health service that is also facing record waiting lists, overcrowding and now the threat of industrial action. Well, my panel of Neve Smith, Padraig McLaughlin and John Lee are still with us. And I'd also like to welcome to the programme uh, Priscilla Lynch, clinical editor of the Medical uh, Independent. And I'm going to start with you, uh, Priscilla. What is, just briefly, the plan with uh, Navin A&E? Well, uh, by the end of June, the HSE had hoped that it would actually take the emergency department offline and replace it with a local injury unit and a medical assessment unit. So that would see minor injuries still being treated at the hospital and also that the 24-hour medical assessment unit would continue to uh, let patients be admitted to the hospital uh, once that had been agreed with the GP or the consultant on call team in the hospital. So it wouldn't be any unscheduled emergencies arriving at the hospital. Um, I suppose for years, um, Navin Emergency Department has proved a bit of an issue for the HSE. There's been concerns issued by the clinicians on site and other hospitals as well about the safety and just its capacity to treat seriously ill patients. We know already that um, severe emergencies such as um, heart attacks and strokes, they're already diverted to Drogheda and to other hospitals as well. Um, and that there is about 25 to 30 patients a day still coming to the emergency department there um, at the moment, but that they want to make sure that seriously ill patients actually go to bigger, safer hospitals. But it's caused a lot of controversy, as you know, it's been dragging on for some years. This is the last hospital actually of the nine smaller hospitals around the country that had been earmarked to have their emergency departments replaced and to have seriously ill patients then put to other hospitals. So it's just yet again been delayed. Stephen Donnelly today issued a statement saying that even though the HSE had announced what was going to happen by the end of this month, that actually this had not been agreed yet. So obviously it's causing tension and controversy there. And uh, it kind of begs the question, who is in charge of making changes with the health service? Should it be the clinicians and the health service uh, itself or should it be the politicians who get to call the shots? Yeah, it was a particularly strange statement, John Lee, um, from the Minister for Health. I mean, I listened to Dr Colm Henry out yesterday, I listened to him on radio this morning, and it very much sounded like there was a plan, it was a done deal, they were going to have further investment in Drogheda Hospital to deal with the excess uh, patients. There wasn't a definite timeline, but this was definitely happening. And then Stephen Donnelly comes along and says today, uh-uh, there's no definite plan, we've got to wait for, you know, government sign-off on this. And Leo Varadkar made a similarly strange um, statement on it today at a press conference that when you, when you analyse these, the words that he used, it, he said that um, the Minister for Health wasn't satisfied, the other cabinet ministers affected by this geographically and we presume politically, uh, Helen McEntee and, and, and Damien English weren't satisfied. And he said the government then hasn't signed off on this plan and we haven't allowed it, but then went on to say that the plan was dependent on ambulances. So Leo Varadkar said that we're going to analyse whether the ambulances are sufficient, the ambulance service to move people out of the hospital to bigger hospitals is sufficient. And that was it. So what he, he, what he said was, we aren't satisfied yet. He seemed to do, go ahead. And when you analyse what he, say, he said, seemed to say it's going ahead anyway. So, so what do you think this says Don't ask then? me to explain what, what all that meant. But no, no, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm equally as confused myself. <laughs> what does it say? In fact, maybe I'll ask you, Neve Smith, uh, you're in Fianna Fáil. What is, what is the plan here? Is this any 
closing and uh, going to become a kind of a new medical assessment unit and those patients that Priscilla talks about will be going to sort of the other bigger hospitals nearby. Is that well, definitely happening? I, I don't know is the honest answer. I know that the HSE met with stakeholders and public representatives only yesterday to have this kind of discussion. I think there was five attempts for them to actually get around the table and have a conversation, a frank and robust, which is what my understanding of it. Can I just say firstly here, Cavan General Hospital, Drahada, Conley, they're all going to be affected by any closures in, 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 in Navan. And I actually would be somebody who, is, who has seen uh, the medical assessment unit developed in Cavan General Hospital. I think it's a great thing. It's a great thing in the sense that, you know, your doctor sees what your, your um, diagnosis is. They can send you to that. Now, at the moment, if that were to happen, the problem for Navan is... And I heard Colm Henry as well this morning talking about there's going to be more beds, more capacity in these other re bigger hospitals uh, to, t to deal with, I suppose, the overflow or the non-existence, if, if you like, of an A&E in Navan. But the question he wasn't asked was, when is that capacity going to be put in place? When are those beds going to be made available? You cannot close an already creaking at the seam system with an, of an A&E in Navan and not tell or provide the exact information. The beds need to be in place first. And I can tell you in Cavan General Hospital, mm -hmm. in A&E, they're working out of literally port cabins. So they the had Department to do of that. Health then, and the Minister does have a point here, they do have a problem with the HSE going ahead and saying, you know, this plan is ready and is in place. It's not. That's taking out one facility and not replacing it. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Padraig, this is obviously against the backdrop of our uh, non-consultant hospital doctors um, indicating that they are ready to go on strike, to take industrial action because they simply cannot deal with the hours they're being asked to work or the overcrowding that we are seeing in our A&Es. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the way our junior doctors have been treated, it's absolutely outrageous. Like, they're working 70 or 80 hour weeks, uh, in some cases over 24 hours. This is against European Working Time Directive. This has been going on for years. Uh, the other thing is that, the, you know, the 30 hours of training, so that's built into that 70, 80 hours, they're not paid for that. So, you know, they, they really have been treated appallingly. Uh, the only thing that surprises me is it didn't get to this point where, you know, there'd be industrial action, you know, long ago. Then you have the, the wider issue of staffing and resources. So you're just putting more and more pressure, be it on nurses, on doctors, on consultants. And of course, the fact that you have so many consultant posts that are left unfilled, that has a knock-on impact on junior doctors too. So, I mean... And it's quite unusual, isn't it, Priscilla? I mean, it's quite a big deal for uh, hospital doctors, for junior doctors, uh, to say they're going to go on strike, to threaten this. It hasn't happened since 2013. That's correct. It is a really rare thing for healthcare staff actually to go on strike. It really means that they've reached the end of the line. And the sad thing is, in this particular case, a lot of these issues were what was at stake in 2013 when it was the 24 uh, No More campaign when doctors striked against um, shifts that were longer than 24 hours. And they said enough is enough. And they did come to an agreement with the HSE. And we did see actually a lot more junior doctors hired around the healthcare system. Um, there was also a number of non-training posts put in place. But the fact is demand has continued to increase. Our population has continued to increase. And now we've had a situation where I think really with COVID, all healthcare staff are absolutely exhausted. Mm. And the last couple of years have seen junior doctors working excessive hours yet again and it keeps keep creeping up and a particular problem is the payment of overtime and they say that some of the hospitals actually don't want to pay them overtime a because they, they don't have the budget for it but b that they don't want to acknowledge that they're working in excess of the European working time directive hours they're already there and we have seen a lot of immigration uh, of our doctors to Australia to the UK to the US and while they've always done that for training purposes a lot of these doctors are going just simply to work and they don't want to come back so that exacerbates our waiting list problems and yeah. the empty posts so it 
becomes really you know an impossible situation. And there was a very stark, John, uh, waiting list um, stat out this week. One in four people in Ireland are on a waiting list uh, within our hospital system for one thing or another. There's a lot going on here, I think, um, because when you see the, the, the Cabinet essentially undermine a decision by the HSE, uh, you see the hospital waiting list growing the way they are. This is post-COVID. Whether politicians felt that this is the time to reassert themselves over the health service, but they aren't doing it in other ways, um, required, which means putting um, resources into the system. The junior doctors have obviously been waiting for this moment, having having served the country in the way they did over the last two years. The, the health service, uh, again, I cast my mind back a year ago, I was asked to come on this programme and pick my um, politician of the year, and I chose Stephen Donnelly, because he had... Um, performed the most successful vaccine programme in Europe at that time. I don't think he'd be getting it again this year. Stephen Donnelly, like the Minister for Housing, like the Minister for Finance and everybody else, is now facing real politique in the sense it's post-pandemic and they've got to deal with all those issues that have been left bubbling under the surface for two years. Yeah, and so is it's that, the start of his tenure, really, for Stephen Donnelly. Is that part of the problem here, Neve? is that because of COVID, um, the sort of wider issues in a creaking health system you know, were put to one side and now they're all coming to a head at this one point and the government simply isn't ready, notwithstanding the fact that there's 21 billion going into our health service, the biggest budget ever. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really remember a time where we were really talking very positively about waiting lists or, or, or things like that. You know, there has always seemed to be, historically, you know, exor exorbitant waiting lists for people to get procedures done. And I have many uh, constituents, as I'm sure Podrick does, coming through the door where people are looking for procedures and being told, you know, in, in, indefinitely when, they don't know when it'll happen, you know. So I suppose but you're, you're right. Job as an elected politician of and your colleagues in government to fix this. Of course it is, and that's why Stephen Donnelly has come out very clearly this morning and said that it is the job we are elected to represent the people, to represent the views of the people, and that that's why this is so important for not just for Navan, for regional hospitals all around. There is this, I suppose, HSC view, is my understanding, shoving people into the bigger hospitals. I know there's ideas around, you know, centres of excellence and stuff like that. However, if you're living in a border county in Cavanaugh, getting to Conley Hospital getting to St James's you know they're not they're not easy journeys for people when you're living in a, in a border county so uh, our regional hospitals are important and there has to be a focus on them and they can't just I mean that is the job of the politicians to represent the views of the people and that's why you had Stephen Danley coming out this morning Well it's also the job of the politicians to fix the problems that are brought absolutely. to their attention and, and you said yourself one of the biggest investments in, in, in terms of the budget that was put into health service this year we, we, we talked about housing earlier on I mean this didn't happen by accident this is policy failure willful policy failure over a long period of time. Slanchicare was agreed by the whole political system. You have the people who were implementing it walking away. You know, so, so this is willful uh, right. failure. And, 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 you know, you have the HSE undermining the point from Stephen okay. Donnelly today. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to uh, Priscilla, to Neve, Podrick and John. After the break, financial expert Owen McGee will be here with tips to help you weather this cost of living storm.
welcome back. Now, the cost of living crisis is dominating headlines on a daily basis. And tonight we are joined by consumer financial advisor and author Owen McGee to discuss some of the issues you, the viewers, have raised concerns about. Um, I suppose before we get to that, I'm just conscious that we read so much um, in the COVID times and in the lockdowns that people were saving, 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 that there was record savings in uh, this country. Are they helping to cushion um, the blow of some of these cost of living increases on for some people? For some people, I think that's a fair comment. I think what we found during lockdown was we saved more than we've ever saved before. Like to put figures on that, prior to lockdown, all households, all people in Ireland, on average would have saved around 443 million euros a month. That was pre-lockdown. The first month of lockdown, we saved 3,000 million. We saved 3 billion euro. We, we added a massive amount to our savings accounts over the period of all of the lockdown. And my big fear for people right now is that as they're getting to the point where they're finding it harder to get to the end of the month, where they're finding it harder for their money to stretch, that they're dipping into the savings that some people have for the very first time. And they're starting to dip into that just to make ends meet. And that's a scary place to be because they felt like they got ahead and now they're being pushed back again with the just the cost of living. And it's not excesses, it's not luxuries, it's not all the things that we were really excited about and couldn't wait to get back out and do. It's just day-to-day -day living. And that's really what the pinch is coming from right now for a lot of people. And for people who don't have those savings, how do they stop themselves from getting into debt at the moment? As you say, to just make ends meet at the end of the month. I think more than ever, you have to be very conscious about what you're doing. You have to be very careful about the fact that um, every euro you spend makes a difference to whether you're going to make it to the end of the month or not. And that's not, that there's more and more people are being caught into that bracket of, I really have to make it to the end of the month. So you have to be very careful about where you're spending money, what you're spending money on. And most importantly, you have to make sure that when you do spend, in, spend money, that it is adding value to your life, that it's something that's important. Any of this, like, why did we save 3,000 million in April 2020? We saved it because we had to go out and consciously spend. We had to be intentional about going out. We didn't just pick stuff up and stick it in our basket and go and buy it. You went to the shop with a list. There was no shops open. You couldn't go to restaurants and bars and you couldn't do all of those things. And therefore, you were really clear and you had a plan about how you spent money. And that meant that you only bought the things you really needed. And we need to remind ourselves of some of that right now if we're struggling to get to the end of the month. But is that not bad news for businesses out there? One of the things I will say is, is that there were two million people throughout lockdown who were better off as a result of COVID. They, their wages stayed the same through government supports or just through their, their employers or through their own work. Their wages stayed the same and their expenses went through the floor. And I do believe that during lockdown and particularly now, just as the supports are disappearing, that government had a responsibility to look after businesses that had to close in interest of the public health. But I do believe that those two million people have got a responsibility to support businesses and particularly local businesses to support them and make sure that they use some of the savings. If you have an excess, there is more responsibility on you right now than ever before to use that excess. And I would say to use it locally. One of the things that I'm involved in, I'm an ambassador for is Champion Green. And Champion Green is a movement that's running over, initially over three years, and I've got involved with it very recently. But the message we're trying to get out there with Champion Green is, is if you're not supporting your local business, nobody is. 
And that's your local restaurants, your pubs, your shops, your coffee shops, anything that's local at all. Keep the money in your locality. The closer you can spend your money to home, the closer it is, the more vibrant community you're going to live in and the more the money gets circulated back into your community as well. In terms of sort of people who are struggling uh, at the moment or those people perhaps who are dipping into their savings and, and don't want to be, what is your advice to them? What do you do? Is there still value to be found out there? Absolutely. Like, there, there's the, the stuff that you hear people like me talk about all the time, like car insurance, home insurance, like even down to your gas and electricity. I would challenge people right now, anybody listening right now, when the show is over, not now, but right, right after the show, go find your last gas and electricity bill. Get onto CRU.ie, which is a government agency, and they'll have a list of all the companies that allow you to switch or help you to switch from one gas and electricity provider to another. Get your last two bills or your, your last gas and your last electricity or whatever one you have. Sit down there and I would challenge you that within 10 minutes of sitting down at the iPad or the laptop or whatever it is, that you will have saved, if you can move one, probably 300 euros on average or 500 euros if you can save both. I did do an extra... A year yes. in savings. Yeah. And I Even did... though we will see every single sort of gas and electricity company bumping up prices. And I think sometimes you think, what's the point in changing? There's no value. Everything has gone up. But you're, they're delighted. Your existing provider is delighted that you're sitting there going, oh, everything's gone up. What's the point in changing? Because you know what they do? It's no different than most companies. What they do is, is and fair play to them, what they say is, is, come over to us. You're a new customer. We're shiny over here. Come over. We want your business. We love you. And then once you're in there for 12 months, they're relying on you doing exactly what you're talking about. Oh, there's no point in moving. I'm just going to stick where it is. And they up the rates. So it's really important that you take control of it yourself. There is places where we're really squeezed. But we really have to look at trying to save money wherever we can. All right, uh, Owen McGee, thank you for coming in and thank you for that advice. Well, that's it from us tonight. Uh, my thanks to all of our guests. The programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram, tonight, VMTV, and from all the late team here. Good night. Do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 